Well, I am pleased and excited to be with you. We are going to be returning in our, to our time in the book of Proverbs, uh, taking a, a look at the subject of work today, uh, certainly from the book of Proverbs, some things that uh, the Lord has been sharing with me the last couple of years I want to um, maybe excite you too with at the, uh, toward our application time. Uh, if you, if you want to earmark a couple of sections in your Bible where we'll be, at the first part we'll be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, just for a little background. Uh, but we'll uh, spend uh, probably the best place to camp out, if you like to do that, is, is going to be Proverbs 31, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. Uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, the excellent wife, uh, we'll talk a little bit about her, but she is going to be a wonderful paradigm for work. And also, as we'll see, uh, Adam and Eve, an excellent paradigm for work uh, in the uh, Old Testament. Indeed, our subject is work. Got my blue jeans on, my loose fitting shirt, planning on working up a sweat, so let's go to work a bit, okay? We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, in some background material because the authors of the Proverbs would have been um, meditating, mindful of what they'd already learned, especially in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but especially Genesis, and especially Genesis 1, 2, and 3 when it comes to the subject of work. So uh, as we think about that and, and learn from with them, what they've already learned is they've figured out what the Proverbs is clearly going to say is that God has put work in this recipe called life. He has ordained work for himself and human beings. It's not an elective. It is a required course that we impart and be blessed with work with him. And so uh, they're going to have understood that, and clearly uh, the Old Testament's going to state that. Notice in Genesis 1, God works for six days. The construction project was basically three days of uh, forming, three days of filling. He formed the planet on days one, two, and three. He fills it on day four, five, and six. Look at all the, or listen to all the the action words um, ascribed to God in Genesis 1 and even on the Sabbath day as he looks back and celebrates. God created, God said, and it was so. He said, let there be. He saw, he called, he made the moon and the sun. He placed the sun and the moon. He created the sea creatures and the birds. He made the earth creatures. He made man- mankind in his image. He created man in his image. He formed the male. He planted a garden. He took and placed the man into that garden to keep and cultivate it. He fashioned the woman. He brought her to the man. And even as he recalls all his work on the Sabbath day, he said it was completed, all that work. Hebrew word, to deliver. I love that. He delivered what he set out to do. All that he had made and created, God rested from that. God gives us a paradigm from, for work from his very being and grades himself. He's the only one around at that time to grade. I guess in Genesis 1.31, he says, very good. All that I've done is very good. And so work, by definition, must also include that which is very good. Now it, he begins to work and teach us, sort of pass that baton of work to us. And Adam is going to be the paradigm of the first worker. And Adam will be commanded by God to work, and he's going to be uh, placed in this garden and told to keep and cultivate it. But then the plot begins to twist just a bit. Because for the first time in the Bible, God says something's not good. Notice 
Adam as a being, he's not saying is not good. Too many negatives there, sorry. He is, he is saying Adam is fine as a human being. He's completely magnificent, actually. This is prior to the intrusion of sin. Adam had the capacity to do exactly what God had built him for. But he was given this task, as we see early in Genesis chapter 2, that is too much. He's told to keep and cultivate a garden. Now we make a, what's a big deal? This is a magnificent being. You know, can he keep a garden? Uh, that's because we sort of download that word garden and sort of think, you know, backyard, tomato plants, square foot, all this stuff, maybe a couple of lettuce plants. Go back to Genesis 2. Go to Genesis 3 and look at the word garden. In Genesis 2, we see that Adam was to keep and cultivate this garden. That garden had a river in it, and that river had such potentiality that outside the garden, it became four rivers. The garden had two trees in the midst of it, and meaning they were completely surrounded by all different kinds of tree, both trees, both beautiful to the eye and good for food. Think forest, think orchard, move over to Genesis 3. God would take walks in the cool of the day in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they both, Adam in particular, tried to hide from God in the garden. Now, I don't think Adam is kind of hunched up over behind some staked up tomato plant in the backyard. He thinks he can hide from God. Why? Because of the magnanimousness of this orchard. Think California. Think of Florida. Large orchard. All the word garden in Hebrew means is cultivated region. The context will determine the size. The task that God gave to Adam was to work. And Adam is then said to be alone in that, to that work, and that was not good. God, ever the provider, ever the uh, problem solver, then provides the azer, the, the ezer, as some might call it, the, the first word to describe the wife in the Bible. It's a very uh, elevated term, by the way. It, it, it's a term uh, elsewhere that only the wife and God share. A term of great dignity. You may see it in the name Eliezer or Ebenezer has the idea of completer. But what does she complete? She completes his aloneness toward the task of work. So the first time they're brought together, it's around the concept of work. It's a very important thing to note. Certainly the authors of the Proverbs recognize that. So work then, biblically, if you just take a look at Genesis 1 and 2, sort of a macro-level definition is this arrangement or the rearrangement of materials and ideas for good. That covers a lot of stuff, I realize, but it gives us something to work with. It's the arrangement or rearrangement of materials and ideas for good. Sounds great. What could possibly go wrong? Of course, Genesis chapter 3 introduces this terrible contaminant called sin that now ruins everything, including work. Work is the ordination of God. Hard work is the result of the fall. He doesn't say we can opt out of work now that it becomes hard. He equips us and allows us to push through, if you will. But the original provision to work maintains. Hard work is now that daily living audiovisual reminder that every day I need to escape this sin that I have participated in and brought about this hard work, and look forward to the hope of no longer being here, the day in which there will be no more tears uh, to wipe and uh, no more pain. It is actually good 
that work is now hard, for it reminds us of our need for removal and our total desperation upon God. So we conclude some things, okay, just from a brief little review of Genesis, that work both before and after the fall is God's plans for human beings. Both male and female participated in keeping and cultivating the garden. Her work was crucial to the need, so important uh, to that that she is assigned that highly elevated term, Azer, that only she and God will share in the Pentateuch, a very powerful, noble term. Also, we'll see that we are fearfully and wonderfully made to work. We're designed to work and in so bringing pleasure to God. And lastly, and I want you to think about this word partnership. It means a lot to me. It resonates well. Work then becomes a meaningful and real partnership with God in his love and care for the world. He has appointed human beings to be stewards, managers of his planet, to participate with him in the management of that planet. And we see that partnership imagery sort of uh, come from that idea, uh, as, uh, as we'll discuss later. As, as we now move to Proverbs, all those ideas and themes will be woven like threads through a tapestry in the book of Proverbs as well. But that's the theology that Solomon and the other writers of Proverbs would have well known. That's what we just discussed quickly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Big ideas, obviously, in in Proverbs live in awe or to the glory of God. Glory in Hebrew is the idea of being large or heavy, important. Work around that, arrange yourself around that central presence, or live in response of awe to that magnificent being called God. And along the way, throughout the book of Proverbs, like on Easter egg hunts, just be picking up little nuggets of wisdom, little nuggets of skill so that we can give God pleasure by living skillfully. Probably a better understanding of the word wisdom, both in Old Testament and New, is this idea of skill. Wisdom sort of is a little ethereal at times. Is that just a bunch of old guys or something making decisions? The Bible says the young can be wise to have skill. Uh, look around this room, all the things that, that take skill. Uh, I don't even know how to build a cross, let alone a, a PowerPoint operation. The skill of these musicians and artists it takes skill to do lots of things. It takes skill to live life wisely, to live life in accord with God's Word and what brings him pleasure. So that's really the essence of the book of Proverbs, and within the book of Proverbs, let's go mining a bit for what the book of Proverbs says about work. And in particular, let's spin it positively, that the wise worker is trustworthy, diligent, shrewd, like that one, we'll spend some time there, generous, just, the wise worker guards the tongue and is humble. So in our time now in Proverbs, we'll take a look at briefly uh, uh, each of these build the points. This is, this is really not a Bible flipping kind of morning. I'm going to put most of it on the overhead. There's too many verses to make your case, but it'll, it's certainly available to you. But think along with me because you'll see the themes uh, as these things unfold. We'll just knock them out one at a time. First one is going to be found appropriately so in Proverbs 31. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Now what's been going on in Proverbs all 31 chapters of Proverbs, is this accumulation of wisdom, okay? Wisdom, the term, chokmah in Hebrew or Sophia in Greek, 
both languages, wisdom is a feminine noun, okay? So wisdom is personified as a female throughout the book of Proverbs. And we're, we're going to see that the book also sort of builds. So the time you get to chapter 31, the last chapter in the book of Proverbs, the finale, the final section, verses 10 through 31 of chapter 31, which we would know as the excellent wife or the Proverbs 31 woman, we're going to see the personification of wisdom in the life of this lady, especially in the realm of work. Principles of work that men and women can extract from her work habits, her work abilities, her skills, her trustworthiness, her shrewdness, her generosity, her justice, her humility, is a wonderful little Cliff Notes or Sparks Notes version of the book of Proverbs. So if you get in trouble and you need to know the whole book of Proverbs quickly, just flip on over to 10, or chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, and extract the principles of what that lady does in and around the realm of work especially, and we'll be on good ground. That's the idea of Proverbs, especially now as we look at the trustworthiness of the wise worker. Uh, her husband trusts her, but I, I, as I looked at the Proverbs, I see that two main areas of trustworthiness needed to be discussed just for a moment. Faithful to the responsibilities that the person is given in their work, and their work can be for, in vocation, it can be for money, or it can be in volunteering, any kind of arrangement, rearrangement of materials, ideas for good. We need to be faithful to the responsibilities that we have been entrusted with, and honest. Notice the 360-degree realm of the Proverbs 31 woman. She doesn't just go to work for herself. She doesn't just go to work with her husband for her family. She realizes that my work touches lots of different realms, lots of different spheres. There's four of them that we see just from the 31st chapter. Her customers, her community is impacted by her work. Her family will be impacted by her faithfulness or unfaithfulness to her responsibilities. And to her fellow co-workers, they're impacted too. The faithful, wise worker is trustworthy and is thus faithful to their responsibilities. Let's take a look at a few of these verses. Notice from chapter 31, uh, she does him good and not evil in the days of her life to her family. She is like merchant ships. She brings food from afar. She listens to her customers. She provides what they need. She, does, she rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. That's a little bit of a combo. Got the family, but notice at the end, to her maidens, her co-workers. She's taken care of them. She's concerned about their well-being. And to the community, absolute crucial aspect in both the New and Old Testament that our work also should have an impact through our generosity, typically, to the community. She extends her hands to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. Four aspects of faithful worker seen with this woman. Uh, the idea uh, of uh, the, that the worker should not only be faithful to their responsibilities, but also honest, first in words. Now, the, the Proverbs will use, fancy word is antithetical parallelism. It'll just say the same thing, but opposite. So in this one, it's going to talk about that I don't like this, lying. I like this, dealing faithfully. And you'll see that a lot. They'll either say the same thing, synonymous parallelism, or opposite or antithetical parallelism. Here's a good uh, idea for the, the worker in the, in the realm of vocation, in the realm even of volunteering, to be honest with words. Lying lips are an abomination to Yahweh, and those who deal faithfully 
or his delight. We're going to see the word delight a few times today. I think it's a crucial word in the Proverbs. In fact, there's four or five different synonyms roughly meaning the same thing. Uh, Notice, the the reason I like the word delight, it it reminds me at least uh, of the intimacy of our relationship with God. Um, Think about the things over which we delight, especially moms and dads. You delight in, in, in the actions of your children, especially when they do well, when they're obedient, when they seek to please you. God is delighted when we seek to please him, in this case, by dealing faithfully with our words and not following the way of the one who lies. Also in our deeds, a just balance and scales belongs to the Lord, belong to the Lord, and the weights of the bag are his concern. And that's kind of an Old Testament kind of saying, isn't it? Let's see if we can unlock this a bit. To unlock this verse, you've got to go to the produce section at your favorite grocery store. Maybe you go to the farmer's market. Maybe you go to the HEB or Kroger. doesn't matter. You've got to go to the produce section because you've got to bring home a bunch of pounds of some stuff. Typically, the best illustration is that you're a husband who's been sent to go to the store and has a list. And the list says five pounds of potatoes. Get the kind that are individual. Weigh them out. Okay? How else am I going to do that? I got to go to the scales. I got to go to the balance. The weight in the tension of that scale, certainly at a farmer's market, it might literally be the kind of justice kind of balance that needed only to be made even by two equal weights. Apparently, in that time, both the seller and the buyer had their own set of weights. You might get those in your Christmas stocking or something. I don't know, but you'd have a pair of weight, and you're, you're, you're buying, right? So you're going to the, to the farmer's market, and you've got your five-pound rock over here. And you say, I want five pounds of potatoes. But you intentionally have written five pounds on your rock. Good, but it really weighs five and a half. That's unjust. That's imbalanced. Conversely, you don't want the seller having a weight that says five, but it only weighs four and a half. You don't get your full measure. I love uh, this picture from the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, Look at their fingers, first of all. This is probably a better illustration of being shrewd. They're they're both trying to counter each other, trying to lighten the load, or uh, conversely making it more heavy. But where are their eyes? Their eyes are kind of, they're bound to the scale. you, You go to the store, this is what you see. I'm a dutiful grocery store shopper. I could get what's ever on that list, and I'll put five pounds of potatoes in there, and I won't stop until that red line comes to five, and when it does, I'm done. And I expect that there's really five pounds in that weight. Now, the U.S. Department of Weights and Measurements have made sure there's a little seal on the other side. They come along periodically and say, yeah, you're good to go. Really weighs five pounds. Go back to that verse and notice the intimacy of the Lord in our dealings and our transactions with, uh, with people in business. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. Notice the closeness, the intimacy. All the weights of the bag are his concern. He's concerned that your, your, bag, that your weight really weighs five and a half, that your weight really weighs four and a half. Let's meet the standard. Let's all yield to the same standard. That's what trustworthy workers do in their deeds. Diligent workers is the next, act, next, act, next aspect. We've seen that a wise worker is, is, is certainly trustworthy, but they're also diligent. Diligent workers work hard. Now, they plan for the future. They contribute profit. There's sort of an overarching verse that I like with this idea of diligence. The hand of the diligent 
will rule. Okay? The word diligent literally means in Hebrew to cut. In some cases, to cut a ditch. I have a good picture now. I've got a, a very straightforward aisle in front of me. And, and say my job this morning would have been to set up the chairs so that there was a straight aisle and it didn't weave an S on me. My work has cut out for me, the concept might make. The diligent person sticks to the job and makes sure that the job doesn't veer off. Their ditches are straight. They're decisive in their cuts. You with me? That's that idea of diligence is they're paying attention to their work and making sure that it's done correctly. They work hard. Got to go to the, to the ant, right? As opposed to the sluggard in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. So he's telling the, ant, the sluggard, hey, go watch an ant bed. I love the Bible. It does this all the time. Jesus especially. He's picking up dirt. So look at that bird. Look at the ocean over here, throwing seeds around. Stuff that people knew in his day. He used the elements of his day. We have plenty of elements. They're probably different unless you live in an agrarian society. But nonetheless, the illustrations are there. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways. Sorry, ladies, ants are also feminine in the book of Proverbs, so you got to hang. You get easier and you get wisdom, but you got to get ant too, okay? All three of those come in the feminine noun form. Go to the ant and watch her, who having no chief, officer, or ruler, there's no boss around, but they do it. They're diligent to working hard, preparing food in the summer in the right time, and also bringing in provision in the harvest. They're about the business of being diligent, about the business of working hard. Here's some opposites, like vinegar to the teeth. Sour, don't like that. Smoke to the eyes, it's an irritant. This is what the lazy are to the employers. Man, you're just kind of hard to work with here, man. It's tough to work with you. I've got to get you going better. But the Proverbs 31 woman works with willing hands. And this is the one I like the most. Okay? Proverbs 31 doesn't say work 21 hours a day. In fact, it says let your sleep be sweet. Let your sleep be sweet elsewhere in chapter 3. It's unwise to work that much. But when you're working, be diligent, work hard, plan for the future, and notice be willing. This idea of willing really, as translated elsewhere, delight, joy, in the sense of appreciation of what I'm doing. That larger idea that we have been commissioned to work and to participate with God is pleasurable to him and to us. What else do wise workers do? They not only work hard, but they plan for the future. The plans of the diligent will lead surely to abundance, and everyone who is hasty comes only to want. They also contribute profit. I do a lot of life coaching, especially with young guys uh, who are coming out of the business school for some reason. They've kind of come my way. I don't really know why. And I was a finance major in college and and worked secular employment 15 years uh, prior to going to seminary and then in ministry ever since then. So I understand uh, that world. I understand that was a finance major and accounting minor and all that stuff. I know that world a bit. I know what it's like to work in a corporation and to use your mind and talent that way. But the first thing I'll tell them is, this ain't about you just finding a job. This is about you bringing something to your employer. Change your mindset about what's going on here. A&M doesn't hand you a union card the moment you graduate. You've got to go show value to potential suitors 
who are interested perhaps in hiring you, or I may hire him instead or her based on their ability to present themselves as valuable to the corporation, to the company. Make no bones about it. In most business, it's about making money. That's fine. Help them make money. Bring value to that business. Arrange and rearrange ideas and materials for good so that that company flourishes. And in the midst of that, you'll earn the responsibility and the right to be able to share other types of things that you know. But bring a profit. Notice she does. Her merchandise is profitable. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundant. Kind of like being shrewd, right? That's the third aspect of the wise worker, diligent and trustworthy and shrewd. If you're an Old Testament, I mean, if you're a King James guy or gal, grew up in the King James, this is the word prudent. It's one of the four main characters in the book of Proverbs. Um, it's the idea of, of shrewdness. Uh, we get thrown off a bit because the very first time this word appears was back in Genesis 3, where we did our little homework earlier. Genesis 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Arum, same word, translated shrewd or prudent in the Proverbs is translated crafty in Genesis 3.1. Now, we know that he is up to no good in his craftiness, but nonetheless, we can learn what crafty means, okay? People are moral or amoral. Words are just words. It's a word that describes someone who makes the most of the resources. You're going to go back to the crafty one in Genesis 3. He's checking things out. I want to be the ruler, but God has made this man and this woman to rule over me. I've got to figure out a way to split them apart. I've got to use all the resources that are at my disposal, including his knowledge of the Word of God, his twisting the Word of God, him, them, him getting them to think separately. Those two me's that had become a we now go back to being me's again, and he made his way in. He made the most of his resources. He was shrewd. He was crafty. Practices keen awareness, we see in chapter 31. Prepares for contingencies. Star that one. Keep that one. That's going to come up here in a moment again. They seek good advice, and wise workers who are shrewd seek to also improve their skill and knowledge. Notice these verses, all from Genesis or, or from Proverbs 31, except uh, the seek good advice. The Proverbs 31, excellent wife, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Her job of running a farm, an industry, a manufacturing place required that her physical strength be there. She is not afraid of the snow. Here's that planning ahead for her household. For the household are clothed in scarlet. Unforeseen rain, unforeseen snow. She's ready. My family's already prepared if it gets too cold. Notice that the wise worker can also be generous. And this is one of the most beautiful um, examples of how work can impact the community and others. Because first of all, the wise worker realizes that generosity and fiduciary responsibility do not conflict. They're not such different things that they can never merge. You know, we're quite capable. We can do many things all at one time. And we're capable of understanding that I can make Profit, be fiduciary, fiduciarily responsible, responsible, and also be generous. Both can happen at the same time. Notice from 1917, one who is gracious to the poor, check it out, lends to the Lord. Lends 
to the Lord is participating in that partnership. It's active. It's around money, so all of a sudden now it's personal, right? I'm lending to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. There's an interesting word play here, and I was a Hebrew major, and I can't help it when these things show up. I've got I to gotta show you just a little bit about what was going on. There's two different words for hands here. Uh, again, under the same premise that generosity and, and fiduciary responsibility uh, can exist at the same time. This is a woman who is at the spindle, okay? And she's working with her hands. That's what the first verse, or half of the verse is going to say. And there's two different words for hands in the Hebrew, okay? But they both are synonyms. They both basically mean the same thing. It's an intentional wordplay uh, to, get, to get our attention. So her hands are put to the distaff, which is a portion of the spindle, and her hands hold the spindle. So she's, she's got yarn going. She's doing, uh, making uh, a garment and, and extracting uh, the, the element of that garment. Great. She's working. What's the second half of the verse do? Uses the same two words. Notice the construction. Yellow word, then blue, blue, then yellow. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. The same hand, the same hands that labored, that produced profit, that worked hard, that was diligent, is also used to be generous to the community, to the poor. The beautiful connection between work and generosity, seen lovely, uh, wonderfully here in, in Genesis 30, or in a Proverbs 39, 19 and 20. As a result of that, they know the right time to be generous and to be just because they're skillful in recognizing that we live in a fallen world. The wise worker, according to Proverbs, is aware of what's going on, is aware of the standards of fairness. Remember the scales? Okay, got it. Five pounds should be five pounds. But they're not, not naive. Sorry for the double negative. They're aware of what's going on. There is injustice. There is unfairness. This is that larger kind of dealings, we would call it social justice today. They feel a responsibility to the community and how themselves and their business, if it will, their vocation impacts that, and they don't want to participate in unfairness. And they'll step back then if unfairness has crept in. Better is little with righteousness than large income with injustice. They ain't going to bed at night with injustice. They're not letting that be a part of their life. I'll take less if that's what it means. They won't participate in that. They're wise to what's going on. They realize the reality of the fallen world nature. Oppressing the poor in order to enrich oneself and then and giving to the rich will lead only to loss. When I first saw that one, I thought, and giving only to the rich, that doesn't belong, because you'd think, I'm going to oppress the poor so that I could be enriched. But now this guy is oppressing the poor to enrich himself so that he can give the money to the rich so that they'll be impressed with him. That will all lead to loss, okay? That sense of fairness, that sense of, of justice. Wise worker guards the tongue. Love this one from chapter 21. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles classic proverb kind of word, right? You won't have any troubles. They also avoid gossip where there is no whisper, nobody talking over by the water cooler, telling everybody the latest stuff. Are the Christians saying, give me a little bit more information? 
information so I can pray more specifically. Thank you. Okay? That's how we do it. Where there's no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Don't, let, don't, don't, don't add wood to the fire, as James would say. Let it go. The whisperer is the gossiper, obviously. One of my favorites, because I'm often guilty of it, soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stores up, stirs up anger. We've all been there. Guys, I'm just going to talk to you for a moment. That moment after you say what you shouldn't have said, and then you realize, oh, man, there went the next hour, okay? Because it all come crashing down, and you just said, man, if I could just go back and take that one back, do it. Do it. Do that soft answer instead of that harsh answer, and it'll turn away wrath. It won't be throwing gasoline onto a fire. Lastly, wise workers are humble. There are two things they're going to avoid. They're going to avoid pride and the lure of fame, that desire to be known. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know whether the day might bring forth. Very similar to the book of James, by the way. Let another praise you. Not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. It's okay to get praise. Just let someone else do it. Don't manipulate it. Just work hard. Be wise. Be shrewd. Be diligent. Be generous and just. People will notice. It'll make a difference. Also, avoiding pride and the lure of wealth. Admittedly, fame and wealth go hand in hand, but if they're separate, we can look at it here. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall, it is better to be of lowly spirit among the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. There's that idea of, I'm going to back off just a little. I'm not going to be that I did it my way kind of guy. Go for all the gusto. I'm going to work hard, do my best, try to bring value and profit to my company, but I'm not going to do it unjustly. And if that opportunity steps in, I'm going to not deal with that individual. That customer will not be one of our customers. That client and us will have to part. I'm not going to go there, as we might say today. So the wise worker, it's a quick sevenfold approach. Trustworthy, diligent, shrewd, generous, just. One who guards the tongue. One who is humble. Um, I've been thinking about some stuff lately, and I got a little homework, sorry for the pun there, to, uh, to put out for you guys, um, if you will. And I just want you to think about work for a while. That arrangement, that rearrangement of materials, ideas for good. Maybe you're in the audience and you're independently wealthy and you're, you're just volunteering. Do that well. Embrace it to the fullness of your gifts and talents. But maybe you're listening to me and, and, and I'm here talking about work and, and, and all this stuff and you're just going, man, that, that's hard for me, man. You don't know where I'm at. You don't know what my life is like. I, I, I probably don't. I mean, I've worked with a lot of guys that work on Wall Street uh, I worked secular employment for 15 years of my life. I understand some of the things that, that, that's encountered. If, you're, if there's a spectrum, if I could lay a spectrum out for you, and, and over here is this, this end of the spectrum, and that's the guy or gal that's just saying, no, nah, not for me. It's the, I'm not doing this. Work is too hard for me. I don't understand all that you're saying. I just go to work as a Christian. I make money, and I come home, and I live my Christian life, frankly, divorced from my office. And I've had too many people in my office at my couch to know that that's not happening. That is happening. Okay? They simply divorce themselves from work and their faith 
And none of this makes any sense. I'm just asking you to not go all the way to the other end of the spectrum over here where I'm going to be in a moment. Just begin to even think about thanking God for the duty and privilege of work. That it's a part of the human condition, that we were designed to work, and it's good to participate. And it's a way every day to bring God pleasure and worship. You know, we come and gather, we sing songs, and we, we, we say, let's worship the Lord. I'm talking about a way to worship 365 days a year. Partnership with God in and around your, certainly your vocation, but even in your volunteerism. If you want to move a little further down the spectrum, and maybe you're way over here or just in here, and you go, hey, this is kind of interesting. I never really thought about some of these things. I want to give you some other ideas to reimagine your work. And I want you to ask God to help you reimagine my work. God, can I see this differently? I don't think it's just a place and a way to make money. I don't think it's just a place to maybe one day witness to someone. Although, again, we said earlier, we're capable of doing all sorts of things at the same time. Certainly, provision comes from work. There's abundance from good labor, the proverb says. Certainly, there's an opportunity where God is placing me in, a, in a, perhaps a secular environment, and I'm representing him there. I want to do that well. But you don't walk in the first day and say, let's have a Bible study. You, you have to shrewdly move into the lives of people, and maybe that day will come. But if, 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 if you think of, of work as just these two things, I, maybe you're afraid to say it. I'm not. There has to be more to it than that. It can't just be that. Those are part of the ingredients of the recipe, but they're just not all of them. I want to give you some other things to ponder. That's an opportunity to participate with God and his plan for humankind. We've seen that from the get-go. It's an opportunity to bring God pleasure, maybe in a way that you hadn't thought of. Uh, that, that, uh, that innovative, invigorating idea that you might come up with work not only is good for your business, not only good for your career, brings pleasure to God. That's my boy. That's my girl down there doing things that she's supposed to do. It provides that opportunity to enjoy a meaningful and real partnership with God in his love and care for the world. Let's get a little bit more specific, okay? It's an opportunity for you to demonstrate your God-given creativity, okay? Now, about a third of you are looking at that creative word and going, not for me. I'm an engineer. I'm military. I'm a lawyer. I don't do anything creative. I beg to differ. Every human being is made in the image of God, believer and unbeliever. And certainly that means we have the opportunity, the capacity, better, for spiritual union. We have the capacity to represent God on earth, as we see from Genesis 2. But it also allows us to participate with, in what I think is the family business, creativity. What's the very first verse, verb assigned to God in the Bible? Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created. And I think that which he possesses, he imparts to us also. We have the ability to recognize the structures of our lives. So engineers, maybe civil and, and mechanical engineers, you, know, you understand physics, you understand math, and you've got to work within those confines. That's great. But you can also be imaginative. You can be innovative within those realms. That's how things are discovered. If you go back over time, the amount of things discovered by Christians pushing the limits within the realms that they, they knew is overwhelming. 
we see this idea of creativity, not just among the artists, not just among the creatives, but throughout society, you can be creative. Take the structures of your life and your business, your discipline, law, doctor, teaching, stay home dad, stay home mom, regardless, manager, administrative assistant, there are some structures, but learn to be innovative and imaginative within those structures. And by the way, the musicians are not just creative only, they're also restricted somewhat by the laws and regulations of music, and yet they innovate, yet they uh, are imaginative. You know, it's not just for Bob Dylan and Beyonce or whoever is out there who we say is creative. We are all creative because we're made in the image of God. Also, that workplace, that volunteerism affords us an opportunity to show our value for fellow human beings. Part of the deal of thinking through the image of God is that human beings, because they all possess the image of God, believer or unbeliever, they are by definition valuable. There's a dignity and a nobility, even to that worst individual in your office or the one that you might imagine. You're so glad he or she transferred out. You never go on that floor again. That individual is made in the image of God. That's reimagining work. It takes faith, by the way. You know, we, 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 we often exercise faith when the crises of life occur, and that's great, and that's what it should be, and there's sort of these kind of high moments of, I'm really believing God in this time, but how about an opportunity to trust in the sovereign power of God, the grand chess player, moving my involvement with my fellow worker to a plan to bring that individual to Christ, to bring a deposit of grace or humility or mercy to him or her. One of the conferences that I enjoy most is the Faith and Work Conference in in New York. Tim Keller's Church Redeemer puts this on. And I I had the opportunity to hear and have heard from her many other times uh, a woman named Nancy Ortsberg. She's the uh, leadership development director at a church in Chicago. She's in her 50s now. And when she was in her 20s, she was a nurse. And her first exposure to this kind of mindset occurred when the the doctor over the OR uh, that they ran, uh, a Christian, a Christ follower as he called himself, taught her this lesson. There was a particular, this particular doctor had a team of seven or eight attendings and nurses who did a variety of codes, most of them emergent type of things. This one particular day, it was a three-hour code, very difficult, didn't know if the patient was going to make it, finally stabilized the man enough through a series of surgeries to move, them, move him on uh, to intensive care. And as was typical of this doctor, a very good leader, uh, he began to ask questions about the procedure. Do you notice I used this stitch here? Do you notice the, that the gauze we had set out had got moved over here, and that caused a little problem there, and I need you to move to my left a little bit more when we have that procedure? Uh, doctor stuff, Okay. Now, that week, an intern had been assigned, first year in residency, out of a hotshot school in Ivy League, had been assigned to the team, just to observe. Okay? So he's watching, and he's figuring things out, and the doctor goes through all the series of questions with the attendings and with the nurses, asks the intern one question. Hey, did you see the cleanup guy who came in while we were going through our stuff, going through our Q&A? And you can imagine that. Hotshot intern. No. Why would I notice the intern or the cleanup guy? What, what could he possibly have to do with anything? Well, the doctor goes on to say that 
His name is Carlos, and he's the best housekeeper we have, and we've got lots of them. He turns the room over more quickly, more cleanly than anybody else on his team. And as a result, we're able to save more people, touch more lives. His wife's name is Maria, he went on to say. They live about three miles from here. They got three kids. He named each of the kids. He named each of their ages. And he became quite apparent to the whole team and the hotshot intern that the doc had been to Carlos's house. And she never forgot it. That kind of impact, that a simple Q&A among fellow workers, a servant leader giving value that was due to the household guy. Now, the story would be cool if I was to say that the household guy, that Carlos is now the chief of surgery at Johns Hopkins. He's not. He's probably still the same hospital. Maybe retired by now. That's not the point. The point is, The doc knew to assign value, and he gave the intern a duty. You go find something about Carlos that I don't know, and you bring that knowledge back to me. A whole different approach to medicine he was taught that day. That's this wonderful idea of because people are made in the image of God to to show them value. And lastly, every day in our volunteerism and our work, we have the opportunity to represent God. Imagine yourself to be a spiritually guided missile in your office. A smart bomb, dropping like we picked up little nuggets of wisdom going through the book of Proverbs, drop little deposits of God, grace, mercy, humility, servant leadership. The better, the, the more secular the background, the better. Because the diamond of God's deposits will shine against the blackness of that background ever more powerfully. You let them know you stand for Christ, not in a ridiculous way, but just in an everyday way. Get to know the name of your coworker's wife. Get to know the kids' names. Find out when their birthdays are. Send them a little email. Because when life hits, and it will, you'll get the call. And then you can move to that moment of, of spiritual flourishment in their life. Um, the concept of work, as we're talking about today, helps us appreciate and value all kinds of work, from the most simple to the most complex by believers and unbelievers. So I want you to reimagine your work and follow this maxim that Christians can learn not only to value and to participate in the work of all people, but also see ways to work distinctly as Christians. We have a playbook. We have an indwelling Holy Spirit. We have a moral compass that is superior to the world's. Bring value through that to your office, to your co-workers. I want you to read this book. Unless you're over here and going, man, I'm not listening to what you're saying yet. I've got to think about even thanking God for work. If you're anywhere over here, I want you to buy this book. I've been working for 42 years. It's the best book on work I've ever read outside the book of Proverbs. There's probably been five books outside the Bible in my 37 years of faith that have impacted me this deeply. Okay? So I'm not just adding an application because I've got to end the sermon. I asked to do this message because of what God's been teaching me a bit. Okay? If you're interested in the workplace as a place of ministry, a place of real difference, and you want to connect your work to God's work, read this, read this book. I don't make a commission on it. 
I haven't cut a deal with Tim. Read the book. I want you to think about as we end our time now with, with communion, this idea of, of making a memorial. That's what communion does, right? We memorialize Christ's death and his resurrection. We participate in a communal meal with him and each other. Maybe we can marry these two thoughts together. If, if, if any of this work stuff is sort of just, hmm, I've got to rethink about that. That interests me. I promise I will think about calling work a duty and a privilege. If anywhere along that spectrum we've hit home at all, maybe mark today as a milestone. I guarantee you there's a few of you that are going, I'm in. I'm in. Mark that day as today. Memorialize that with this communal meal with God and each other that I'm going to begin my life differently with, as a reimagined worker, if you will. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you can't work to get that. It's totally free. Isn't that great? It's just a gift. God has given us his son, the one who died on the cross and was raised from the dead, so that we might have faith in him and participate with him as the men come forward and, and pass the elements out. And you might be thinking, i got to learn more about this God you're talking about. Come up afterwards, pray and think about some more, or simply right now, right here. Say, Christ, I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Make me a member of your family. As the body of Christ, we get the opportunity to come and celebrate. But the Bible also says, first examine yourself before you partake. So as the elements are being distributed, obviously think about yourself as just a believer, but also in the realm of your work. How you doing? Is there anything that we've said today that may be of note to you, that may be helpful to you? Spend some time with the Lord as we distribute and then we'll close. What a privilege it is, God, today to come and be with you and each other, to participate in the Lord's Supper. We pray that you might be pleased with us that you might delight in us, that we as men and women of God might be objects of pleasure for you, but also that we might begin to uh, perhaps invite you into places where we've not asked you before, uh, to our workplace, uh, to our volunteering, uh, to our deal-making. Help us, Lord, wherever we are on that spectrum that we talked about, just take that next step a little further and see work as a delightful pleasure in thy eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful week.